0: You're listening to Marketing Major with Josh and Mo, a podcast created for students by students who are curious about marketing. All righty, welcome to the the season finale for the second season of Marketing Major And my last ever episode of as co-host of this show. Uh, Definitely graduating at the worst possible time, but uh, hey, what can you do? So for my final send-off, I was lucky enough to uh, reach out to my marketing idol, Terry O'Reilly, to see if he might come on uh, this little amateur show that we've created here. And he was gracious enough to join us over the phone from his vacation in California. And this was all at the start of March before everything got a little crazy but I was a little embarrassed actually when we first started the call. Uh, We were still having audio troubles and Mo and I ended up spending the first couple of minutes just doing uh, tests and stuff to get it going. And it was a bit of a disaster off the start. And Mo and I actually just shared one microphone for this uh, recording. So definitely not the best when you're sitting across from a audio master like Terry O'Reilly, but we made it work. And if you don't know who Terry O'Reilly is, um, I mean, you got a lot of catching up to do. I'll definitely leave some links in the show notes where you can get more Terry content. But since you're already here, uh, you may as well stay along for the conversation and I'll save the goodbyes for after the show. So Terry, I also noticed uh, from your Instagram post that we are both carrot cake lovers. uh, And I have to ask, You like the kitchen sink approach, where people throw pineapples and raisins in the cake, or are you just a plain Jane guy? (laughs) I love carrot cake. That is one of my biggest weaknesses. I'll I'll take carrot
1: cake any way it comes, to tell you the truth. Is it your mom's recipe, or someone that made it for you as a kid? No, I don't know where where my uh, fixation with carrot cake started, but uh, I've always loved it. It's my favorite. If there's a whole array of desserts to choose from, and there's a carrot
0: cake there, I'll just head right for it. (laughs) that's awesome uh and my first question for you is so throughout this amazing career of yours you spent so much time in marketing and advertising and what is it about marketing that just keeps you so captivated for such a long time i would have to say that
1: it is the puzzle of marketing that i love the most that every single assignment is always different There's always different dynamics and different goals and different objectives and different resources, different budgets, and just trying to figure out what is the core offering of this product or this company, and then what is the strategy, the insightful strategy that underpins it all, and then how can we creatively express that in the best possible way? So all those puzzle pieces have to come together, and I've I've never lost my fascination for that and my curiosity about how to make that work. Would you say
2: that's what got you uh, or drew you into the whole marketing world too?
1: Um, I'll tell you how I, I went to Ryerson for radio and television back in the late seventies and um, I knew I wanted to be in the broadcast world, but I didn't know where. So I went to Ryerson, studied uh, radio and television and film And every Wednesday we would have someone from the industry come in and talk to us in a lecture hall. So it could be a documentary filmmaker, it could be a news reader, it could be a PR person. And one day some advertising people came in from an advertising agency and just talked about the advertising business, about strategies and clients and brands and actors and photographers and directors. And and I sat in the back of that room and I literally saw my future. And that was because I just loved every aspect of what they were talking about. So that was really when the moment I decided that advertising would be the direction I would take.
0: That's funny because the moment for me was listening to your amazing stories on the podcast. I think that that for me was the moment I knew that's what I wanted to do.
1: Well, I, I love to hear that. I mean, it's uh, that that shows the power of just being exposed to somebody. I mean, what what you, when you listen to our show and then me sitting in that lecture hall can change the whole direction of your life. It's really quite an amazing piece of serendipity there.
0: Uh, One of my favorite stories that I wanted to bring up on the podcast, uh, just because I think it shows so many great insights about the way you see marketing, uh, so you obviously know this story quite well, but for anyone who doesn't, uh, it's about the Sparhawk Brewery in Portland and their microbrewery in Portland, Maine, who wanted to create beers for people in the city, in a city that everything is created for tourists. So the brewery had a small budget and radio was chosen as a medium. But the problem was, how do you advertise a new beer commercial without tourists hearing about it? And Terry, I'll let you take it from here in terms of the solution you guys came up with. First of all, we had a very brave client. I'll have to say that right away. Uh, And
1: you don't get a lot of brave clients in your career, but we knew we had one when we met him. So that was the challenge. He was creating a beer for the people of Maine, not for tourists. And as you just said, everything in Maine is geared towards tourists. So when we were conceptualizing our radio ideas, it suddenly occurred to us that we had this huge obstacle to overcome which was how do you advertise a beer on radio and not have tourists hear it? So the idea we eventually came up with was to launch with a commercial just before tourist season began that basically said, hello, we're a new brewery, we're called Sparhawk. We brew our beer in small batches because that's what makes it good. But here's the thing, this beer isn't for tourists, it's for you, the people of Maine. So from this point on, you'll never hear us mention our name again, but when you hear a whistle, which was something like, you'll know that's Sparhawk telling you that a new batch of beer has been brewed, come and get it. So from this point on, you'll only hear a whistle from us. So that's what we did. We create, From that point on, we created kind of fake commercials for various fake companies, like a jeweler, a law firm, a car dealership. And really they were just vessels for the whistle. In other words, we created these fake commercials, put them on the air, and at the very end of every commercial, you heard that whistle. And the client was a little terrified of that idea, as you can imagine, because he was launching a product and we were, we were not mentioning the name of his product beyond the very first commercial. But he, I think he knew he needed a bold idea anyway we put it on the air there was no response for a long time and then suddenly the responses started coming in the this, the the people of Maine really picked up on the idea and then it really took off people would be in a bar and the bartender would say what are you what are you having and they would go and you go Sparhawk coming right up i mean it was just this explosion he got the he got a big Article written about him in big news in a big newspaper in Maine, like it was just a huge successful launch, all centered around a whistle. And is, is that
2: that brand identity still existent today? That the whole whistle. Um, I, no i no
1: he's he well you know he got very successful very quickly he wanted he thought it would take about 2 or 3 years for his small microbrewery to be listed in the big beer stores in Maine but it it he got listed immediately and uh and then i think eventually he sold the beer to a bigger company it just got a, became a very successful thing and he was he
0: probably be probably made millions out of it but it was It
1: all happened pretty
0: quickly for them. Yeah, it's a crazy story because it shows just what you can do on on a lean budget if if you think strategically and a little bit counterintuitively too, which you mentioned quite a bit in your book. And uh, for students like us that are in a smaller market like Edmonton, how important do you think it is to have that counterintuitive mindset when you approach a marketing challenge? I think it's critical. I mean, if you think about that idea... It
1: was such a bold idea that it it took a special kind of client to roll the dice on that because it was kind of a calculated risk. I really did feel that people of Maine would catch on and that they would support an underdog and they would get on board the idea. And I think when you have a small budget, I think creativity makes up for the lack of budget, that if you can be bold and unusual and counterintuitive in your thinking, you can attract the kind of attention that a much bigger budget could attract. So I'm, I always talk about that. My book, from from one cover to the other, talks about
0: that. Do you have any uh, strategies that you guys used to use to try to see problems differently, like that? Well, I mean, the as simple as
1: this sounds, we would do a couple of things in the writers' room. So when we were kicking around ideas we would put up on our, we had a big whiteboard in the writer's room. So we would put up everything that competitors were doing. And then those were all the, the areas we couldn't go near. And when you put up what your competitors are doing in a category, it kind of eats up all the available oxygen. When you look at that board, it's kind of paralyzing at first when you say, well, because they're doing that, we will never do that. And because this brand is doing this, we will never do this. And when you put them all up on the board, there doesn't seem to be any anywhere left to go. But, that kind of thinking or that kind of, I always say that creativity loves constraint. And when you're inside a small box like that, it forces you to be creative. So that was one thing that we would do. We would use forced creativity. The second thing, which was the simplest, we would just play what if games and i had a rule in the writers room that i that i wanted to hear everything that was on my writers minds so there was a rule in the writers room that there was no such thing as a bad idea in this room and i think that's an important distinction to make when you when you're a creative director is you have to create an environment where your your creative people feel safe so they can put their hand up with just the craziest idea and they won't be judged and they won't you know you won't they won't get the weird eyeball from the boss. But in fact, it was a place where you could just have fun with ideas. Because in my experience, some of the biggest ideas that I've been a part of have can't have been the result of the silliest idea of the day. In other words, that silly idea was really a big idea in disguise, or it was the stepping stone to a big idea that we couldn't have got there unless someone had put their hand up with just this crazy Arcane, silly, nuts idea. So, playing what-if games was was a really powerful part of Pirates' uh, success.
2: Yeah, uh, one of the more uh, recent brands that might have taken that similar approach uh, was Burger King, actually, with the recent uh, moldy Whopper campaign. Uh, we just wanted to maybe get your thoughts on that campaign and and how maybe similar it was to to the campaign that you were a part of.
1: You know what I because I've been on vacation, I haven't really dialed right into that campaign. I saw a couple of things shoot by, so I'm not really versed on that on that particular campaign. All I really gleaned from it was they were showing there were no kind of preservatives in their food, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, in my in my opinion, it was more of a shot maybe towards a McDonald's and one of the yeah. competitors who are known for having that that lots of videos on YouTube and stuff where their Big Macs survive months and months without molding or
1: anything. So I think that was the purpose of that campaign. Yeah, that that that's an if you think about it, that's an incredibly bold move in the food category to show your food decomposing because it's not a pleasant image. Yet the residual message is really important. I mean, it's almost like that famous Volkswagen advertising from the early 60s, which is my favorite advertising of all time, when one of the very first ads Doyle Dane Burnback did for, for Volkswagen was to run that one word headline lemon, which is the most toxic word in the, in the automobile business. And they, they used it as a headline. And I, and, and I think even today, you could not sell that ad today. That's how bold that ad was. And it's very similar to what Burger King is doing. They're, they're, they're actually being so bold They're moving into a territory that food advertising would never consider
0: normally. Yeah, you touched on a good point there when you talk about how it's hard to sell counterintuitive ideas. And you said too in your book that you realized early on in your career that if you're going to be successful, you have to be able to come up with ideas and also be able to sell good ideas. And the latter part is typically the hardest. Do you have um, any advice for students on how to sell these kind of big, crazy ideas?
1: I think that that is an incredibly important insight is that creativity in, in marketing is a two-sided coin. One side of the coin is coming up with the ideas, and the second part of that coin is, is knowing how to sell them. So, I mean, I dedicated a whole chapter in my book on presenting ideas because I think there is a, there is a interesting way to think about it and basically what I first of all observe presentations as you go through your career because you will only see a handful of really great presenters in your career I've probably only seen less than six great presenters and I've sat through thousands of presentations by this time in my career I was lucky because I had a mentor very early in my career who was a who was a fantastic presenter so I got to watch him in action see how he handled, you know, how he built up his lead up in a presentation, how he revealed the work, how he made clients feel comfortable with a uh, a very highly creative idea, how he dealt with client concerns in the meeting. So I really got to watch a master at work. And then watching bad presentations is also very helpful because you can see somebody lose the room or not sell a piece of work and it's it's uh, educational because you think to yourself, I will never do that. <laughs> that thing that that he just did, I will make a mental note to never do that in a presentation. So that's part of it and may, and then let me add this. In my book, I talk about how everybody practices uh, a, a presentation. They practice the lead up. In other words, from when you walk in the room and you start your presentation to the moment you reveal it, everybody practices that, but nobody practices from that point on. And I think it's from the reveal to the end of the meeting that is the most important part of a presentation. And that's the part you should rehearse. In other words, think of every possible objection to the work ahead of time. Think of a reasonable, well-articulated response to those objections and realize and practice and come to a point where you know how to make clients comfortable with a very unusual idea because the more creative your idea is, the harder it is to sell. The safer your work is, the easier to sell. So knowing that, knowing that selling great work is the hardest thing, you have to learn how to be a great presenter.
2: No, that's, that's some great advice. And, um, for, for our next question, uh, we wanted to kind of ask about the, the different eras of marketing, um, usually here at school and even on the podcast, we typically discuss the future of marketing, where it's headed, but you've done extensive research on all the eras of, of marketing that, that have passed. And we're just curious, um, maybe what your favorite era of marketing was. And, and if you think parts of that era or characteristics of that era are still relevant
1: today. My favorite era was the 60s because that was the golden era of advertising because everything changed in that 10 years. And that was highly due to Doyle Dane Burnback, that legendary advertising agency that really brought humor and wit to advertising, which you still see. In in the 50s, after the war, advertising in the 50s was very sober. It was like, see the USA in your Chevrolet. And then Doyle Dane Burnback started to uh, do their fantastic work for VW and other great clients. And they've just brought self-deprecating humor to advertising, which advertising had never used before, even prior to the second world war. And humor is such a huge part of advertising now that you can see the echoes of DDB even to this day. So I love the sixties, the 1920s, by the way, leading up to the stock market crash were in fact the biggest, was the biggest decade in advertising history. In other words, all the great huge agencies that still exist today were really born in the 1920s. So that 10 years from probably 1919 to 1929 was really the biggest boom in advert. That's when advertising really modern advertising became fully realized in that decade and the biggest money was spent in that decade until the crash, of course. So the twenties is a fascinating era for me in history, but the sixties is really what it what has informed all the work we see today.
2: You mentioned how um, self-deprecating humor was revolutionary in the sixties. What would you say that agencies today don't do as well as they used to? I think we kind of let go of that self-deprecating humor because. Maybe risk analysis or
1: risk management is more focused on today. Do you, do you agree with that at all? I do agree with that. I think there's, it's not as loose as it once was. It wasn't even, it's not even as loose as it was when I started my career in the 80s. It's, uh, it's a lot more ROI intensive. And by that, I mean all advertising should have a return on investment. But I think it's been overly analyzed now the way radio stations used to be really fun and dangerous and interesting until the programmers got their hands on it now it all seems so programmed i feel advertising has sort of gone that way and with you know relying on algorithms instead of creativity hunting customers quietly with algorithms instead of trying to build a brand with creativity because i think creativity is the most powerful business tool so i think i think the work suffers Another thing I've often said on my show, which is kind of contentious, is that the President of the United States dictates the tone of advertising in any any era. So that's how powerful that position is. So you know, if you think back to um, the Clinton years were were looser and a lot of humor, and then the Bush years were a little bit more more conservative. You can see it in all the work. The Obama years again. Humor came roaring back into the advertising world, and then in the Trump era that we're in right now, it's very conservative. Uh, humor is 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 in low supply, and you can just see the effect of the, of the zeitgeist on on the advertising work.
0: Do you see like improvements in technology and and like a focus today in marketing on data and analytics? Do you see that helping marketing, or do you see that? like focusing too much on logic and less on creativity and, you know, the emotional aspect of what you're selling? Well, uh, any good advertising person loves feedback
1: and loves data and loves information because you need to know as much as possible about the advertising objective or the, uh, the goals or your target market. But I think it still all comes down to what is your idea? Even social media which is this has you know disrupted the entire marketing industry? They're just channels. Twitter is a channel. Facebook is a channel. And, the, and my, I always come back to what's the idea you're putting into those channels? It's still an idea-driven business, and that's why I think creativity still rules at the end of the day. The smartest brands are still the most creative brands, and when it comes to their marketing.
2: So what do you think some of the major challenges facing future generations of marketers are going to be if if currently we're facing this challenge between technology and creativity and how do you maybe see or have any advice for us overcoming those future
1: challenges Well I think the future generation the generation entering the marketing business now I'm hoping that they understand and that they will protect and fight for creativity as they go through their career especially when you eventually move into management positions when you are making the big decisions at the companies you work for or you start your own businesses that creativity won't seem like a um, like a strange you know a banned substance Because it's, you know, in big corporations and even in in business schools, it's all about, you you know, you can only measure what you can see. In other words, I think creativity is this strange ethereal thing where I think it's everything. It's not, you know, just because you can't hold creativity in your hand doesn't mean it's not valuable and doesn't have uh, incredible uh, power in the marketplace. So I think you have to be counterintuitive as you go through your career. In other words... You have to fight for creativity because that's what separates everything. That's what separates great brands from average brands, from great people, from average people. Steve Jobs had that, you know, philosophy that the, that there was, you know, a, there's an A-types, B-types, and C-types, and A-types only want to work with other A-types. And, and, and C-types, meaning really average people, really bring down the creativity of the A-types. They don't want to play in the same, you know, um, playpen as, as, as average people who don't care. So in order to, you know, provide and create a space for the smartest people per square foot in your company, you have to, you know, you have to protect and celebrate creativity. Even in the year 2050, that will be what will, will be the difference between great brands and, and,
0: and bad brands. Wow, that's awesome to hear that creativity will still make a really big impact because I think that's one thing about your show that I've always loved is hearing the, the strategy and the thinking behind such creative campaigns. Uh, and another thing that I love about the show is how talented you are at storytelling too and how you view marketing as the art of persuasion. Yeah. And you often refer to smart marketing like a book. Can you break down that philosophy uh, for, for people who haven't heard the show or read the book?
1: Yeah, I I do think a great marketing strategy is like a book. In other words, for a book to work, you have to have a you know a, a, an initial couple of chapters that sets up you know the the hero and whatever problems they're going to face, and then they face all the problems in the middle chapters, and then in the, and then in the later chapters it gets solved. In other words, there's an arc to the story. It's like a movie. A movie's a three act play. So your marketing needs to be arced too. In other words, an, uh, an advertising campaign ha- should have long legs. Someone should be planning for the next five years. In other words, what do people need to know now, in order for them to understand something in six months' time? And what? And when we get, you know, when we can convince them of something in six months' time, what do they need to bo- to now know about us? To want to purchase us in two months time past there in other words you're just it's like chapters in the book you're taking customers along and you're and you're becoming very aware of the conversation you're not starting the conversation fresh every three months you're actually evolving the conversation over time and you're presenting your case and making people look at your company or product from a different point of view. You're giving them more information, helping them understand. You're being bold with your work, so you're popping through the clutter. But it should have an arc. It should have a well-planned arc for the next three to five years, instead of it just being a one-off lurching ahead to the next quarter.
2: Would you say then a new conversation starts every three to five years, or? It depends, I would say.
1: I don't think you can plan further than that I think there's I think three to five years even three years because there's a lot of market forces that can come your way I mean look at the coronavirus and what's what the effect that's gonna have on so many businesses like travel and events and concerts and so you never know what's gonna come down the line in the economy so I think you want to plan for three years and maybe five but you
0: cannot plan further than that. So you have a new podcast that you're going to release called uh, We Get to Inform You. And right. It's about uh, career rejections and the lessons you've learned from them. And I think it's a bit of an interesting topic for students because we kind of dream of landing that first big job at your dream company and you don't really see yourself you know, maybe getting rejected or having to work somewhere a little less ideal to kind of start your career. And um, from here hearing a few of your other podcasts, um, as I understand, you were rejected 61 times by uh, by 60 different agencies when you wanted to become an entry level copywriter.
1: That's right, that's right. If you look at our latest <laughs> Instagram post, I tell that story. Yeah, so I uh, when I was starting out, I, I sent out 60 resumes to agencies from coast to coast here in Canada and got 61 rejection letters back. So one place actually rejected me twice. And, uh, and it's, it's debilitating to have that much rejection when you're starting out. It's, uh, it's very, uh, difficult to, to be persistent and to keep going. So our new podcast is, is all about that. So we will, in that podcast, which will launch in a few weeks, we tell the stories of really successful people who faced debilitating career rejections. And then we analyze how they overcame those rejections and we pluck out all the insights. So as an incredibly, even though we're telling the story of rejection, it is an incredibly inspiring series to hear what people had to go through before they became successful. Because I think especially students about to embark in their careers, you're going to face rejection. There's no doubt about it. It's inevitable. But to see it for what it is that there are incredible lessons in rejection that rejection has value that there's you know there's learning in a rejection and and uh, often rejections are really just way stations on your on the way to what you were really supposed to get that you know that they were there were necessary losses on the way to a goal that you were really meant to have meant to be And that's what that that series is all about and it's i have to say it is it is an incredibly interesting series for anybody who has a dream
2: so terry after receiving 61 rejections um what 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 was the lesson that you learned and what was your
1: next step after that the lesson was was to never give up was that you needed i think more i think persistence actually gets you further in life than almost talent does. Because I think a lot of talented people give up after a certain amount of rejection, or they think they're not worthy, or that their ideas are not good because they've had 20 rejections in a row. But as you'll see in our new series, the consistent theme is that people just never gave up. Even after they've gotten, like an author has got 31 straight rejections from all the top publishers, He still keeps going and then he eventually finds a publisher who will take his book on. And that book that was rejected by 31 publishers sells a million copies in the first year. So it was the persistence that really made the difference. And in my case, it was that I got 61 rejection letters, but I didn't give up. I still kept knocking on doors and sending out what I thought were creative resumes. And then one day I walked into an agency And the creative director loved my portfolio and he took me on. And that was the mentor that I spoke of earlier who taught me how to present, et cetera. So I just, it took a while, but then I walked into the most ideal place for a young writer where I had a creative director who was fantastic, who loved my work and became
0: my mentor. Yeah. I think that's a really great piece of advice for students is to just keep persevering no matter what. Um, And it's been A great pleasure being able to talk to you today. And we're wrapping up the conversation uh, here with our last question. So you're big on constantly learning and you have a really big collection of books that you've collected over the years. Uh, What books or resources would you recommend for students that are interested in entering a career in both advertising and and marketing? Other than your own, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a
1: big collection of marketing books. I'm constantly on the search for them. Both old and new, by the way, I, I treasure the books I have written in the nineteen twenties as much as I treasure books written nowadays. Um, there's so many to uh, to um, suggest. It's hard to, to just you know uh, name just a few. It's like you know name your f- couple of favorite songs. It's tough, but let me say this: that for people entering the business, I I really think the award show annuals. Are a great starting point. In other words, if you look at the awards, the marketing awards, and the Art Direct, the Advertising and Design Club of Canada awards, and the Can Advertising Awards, and the Clios, and the One Show, if you look at all the award annuals that they put out that you know list all the great work, show you the great work, that those are really the instruction manuals of our industry because you see the best work of the year especially with Can, you see the best work from around the world in all the categories. And you can kind of look at them, reverse engineer them in your mind, say, how did they come up with that idea? And and what makes that idea work so well? And why is the headline bigger than the graphic in this ad, but the the graphics bigger than the headline in this ad? Why did they make those decisions? Whatever it is, you see the best people and the best work in in award annuals. And I, I Think of, of everything that's really the greatest primer that young marketing students could really learn from.
0: Yeah, I can speak from experience. I think even just following things like Ad Week and, and checking up on that weekly and, and you see things just like the Whopper, uh, the moldy Whopper thing, and you get a whole like report on it and everything. So it's fun to be able to learn what goes on in the minds of the people that create the work that's all around you. Yeah, um, But thanks so much for coming on today, Terry. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. And those
1: are really great questions. I enjoyed that.
0: Well, I thought it was only right if I did a little bit of a send-off here at the end for myself. Uh, but I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show over the two years that I've been doing it. Uh, it was a lot of fun to produce this show for you and to see, you know, the hundred people come out every every week to listen to the, you know, for some reason, listen to me talk and Mo talk, <laughs> not the most articulate guys, but it was really fun to have the marketing community in Edmonton and beyond support us and look forward to seeing what Mo and, and the new co-host do uh, next season come the fall time. So I'm sure I'll talk to you guys sometime again soon and, and be safe and well until then. Cheers.